Jeremiah chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, the word, or Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Masiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and to this day in Israel and among all mankind, and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm, and with great terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, 
though the city has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses on whose, roo- on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to, pr- to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger. Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter in my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in my great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin in the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Your word, God breathed to us. And so we pray now that you would speak to us. By your spirit's word, work, open our eyes and give us understanding. Increase our faith. And Lord, cause us to love you more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You uh, remember the story of Abraham when he was instructed to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him. You might have wondered, what was that like? You know, Abraham and Sarah without children. God comes and promises him, you're going to be the father of many nations. They still don't have children. 
God comes and says, you're going to have a child after Sarah's beyond childbearing age. They wait and they wait and they wait beyond what any of us have waited. And Isaac comes and he's born. The son of promise. And they get to enjoy Isaac. All the ups and downs of parenting and the the toddler years and they just they get to enjoy him. And then God says, take your son, your only son, and go up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. Now, we're told when we start reading that chapter that God tested Abraham. And so the sting of it is taken out for us. And, of course, we know how the story ends, that God stopped him and he provided another way. But think of how seemingly impossible it was for Abraham to obey God in that command. Think of the numerous scenarios in the Old Testament when the people of God faced armies that, from a human standpoint, were going to just run all over them. I mentioned one in, in Sunday school this morning uh, from, from 2 Chronicles 20. And in that case, there was this great multitude coming, and everybody knew it was a great multitude. No one was pretending that they had any chance. But the king, Jehoshaphat, who was filled with fear, the text tells us, called the people together and they prayed this prayer. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. There's another one to cross stitch into a pillow, right? I mean, that's, that's one you can hang on the wall and look at every day. Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Many of you have been in impossible situations or are in seeming impossible situations now. And this book of consolation, book of comfort that is in these chapters of Jeremiah where we are, is there to console, to comfort the people of Judah. But it speaks words of comfort and consolation to us. Now, from a human perspective, it seemed impossible that Judah could ever be restored because as this story is unfolding, Babylon, the armies of Babylon are outside the city gates. They are building siege ramps. You can hear the sounds of the army. They've already received word. They're barricaded in Jerusalem. They know that they've overrun the country from the north. That's how they've been told again and again, this country's coming from the north. And here they sit inside the walls and they hear the sounds, the slow and steady sounds. Babylon is about to overrun the walls. Jeremiah, on top of that, is not a free man. He is in custody. By order of Zedekiah, he has been shut up in the court of the guard. And in this setting, God directs him by a field. Do what? By a field. By a field from your cousin. And I'm sure Jeremiah is thinking, you know, he's doing the math here. The armies come from the north. I can hear them outside the walls. Anathoth is six miles north of the city. The field's already in enemy hands. No, I mean, Babylon, it's Babylon's field. And you're telling me to buy the field from my cousin. Foolish. That's how it seemed from a human perspective. And yet this is what God told him to do. And Jeremiah obeyed him. There was purpose, of course. We know the end of the story because we read the text already. But there's purpose in the purchase of the field. 
Now, the people of Judah would read the book of Jeremiah, this book of consolation. Probably it's where they spent most of their time reading, I would guess, when they were in Babylon. And the message of hope here is what would have strengthened them, that not only would God restore them to their land, that he would bring them back, but he promises them something far greater. Verse 41, one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture, I think. God says to his people, I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. What God in any religion talks this way? What God says, I will rejoice to do good to my people. Every other God in every other religion demands that you do good to them. What God does this? What God says, I will delight with all my heart and all my soul to do you good. Only the God of the Bible is such a God who loves with an everlasting love and shows faithfulness throughout the generations. This is our God, who like the promise given in Zephaniah, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Our God sings over us, rejoices over us, delights over us as his people. And now a tiny insignificant field 17 shekels wasn't a ton of money will now serve as a testimony to jeremiah and to the people of judah and even to us today that our god's love endures forever so let's look at the text in the in the first few verses we see the the word of the lord coming to jeremiah again the babylonian siege has already begun outside the walls of jerusalem they built these siege mounds that are referenced in verse 24 to just come over the walls so the walls couldn't stop them. They literally piled up dirt and made a ramp. Uh, If you've ever been to, um, you know, that that part of the world, there's some of these that are are still in place and you can see them. And it's incredible that you think about the fact they did all this without modern machinery and so forth. But think about it for a minute. This impending doom, like you know the armies out there, you hear them, and just moment after moment, Hour after hour, day after day, you know what's happening. That mound is getting higher and higher and higher and higher for the inevitable. Can we even relate to that? I think every time a hurricane comes through. <laughs> because it's this, it's this slow but impending doom. And, you know, you hear the sounds right from the television. It's going to be the worst ever. And, you know, batting down the hatches and all of the, you know, we're watching it intensify and just over and over and over. And it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds as we wait for this unstoppable force. That's what was coming against the city of Jerusalem. In the midst of this mounting attack, Jeremiah was under guard. He was in jail by Zedekiah's order. We read in verse 3, For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. And the, 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 he continues on in verse 4 that, that you know, basically Jeremiah has told him, you're gonna, you know, The city's going to get captured. You're going to get captured. You're going to get carried away. You're actually going to face Nebuchadnezzar and be face-to-face, eye-to-eye with him. Yes, you're going to be carried off into exile. Zedekiah didn't want to believe it. And so rather than listen to Jeremiah's prophecy, he just threw him in jail. And that's why he is now sitting in this prison while 
the very thing that he prophesied is unfolding in real time just outside the city walls. And in this setting, Jeremiah receives another message from the Lord that his cousin Hanamel would visit him in prison. Sure enough, here comes cousin Hanamel, and he's going to request that he buy a field in Anathoth. And this is another of those object lessons. We've seen a number of these with Jeremiah, the, the tunic, uh, the, the, the pottery, and so forth, that these, these tangible items that serve to um, show the message that Jeremiah is declaring. This is another one of those object lessons. Unlike the previous object lessons that pointed to the coming judgment, this object lesson points to the restoration. Now, I mentioned that the invading army, we've been told again and again, it's coming from the north. They would have gone around the Arabian desert to come in from the north to attack that way. We can be certain that Anathoth is already under attack. So why would Jeremiah consider buying a piece of property that had already been captured? And the answer is simply because the Lord told him to. He simply obeyed. It didn't make sense. I mean, it made no sense whatsoever. It seemed in, in, in many ways foolish, dumb to do this. But God told him to, and so he did. Now, the practice of the purchase was commonplace. This was this, you know, kinsman redemption that we see in the story of Ruth. And it was the idea, it's, it's explained in Leviticus 25, but if, if you had a piece of property that you couldn't maintain ownership, you would go to family members to redeem, kinsman redemption. You would go to them to redeem the land so that it stayed in the family. And so that in that year of Jubilee, every 50 years, Israel enjoyed the year of Jubilee, that land would return to its original owner. So this wasn't out of the ordinary in one sense that he would come to him for this. It was out of the ordinary in the fact that the land had already been overrun by the Babylonian army. Now, in verse 9, we read that Jeremiah obeyed the Lord's instruction. And there among the palace guard before the many witnesses, he weighed out the appropriate silver 17 shekels, which, again, isn't very much money. Now, we're not told about the land if it was just a small piece of land. It's, that really doesn't matter. The point is, and we're going to be told here in a minute, the point of the land is that it serves for an object lesson. Not only does he buy the land according to God's command, but he follows all the legal steps. He signs the deed. He seals it before the witnesses. He makes a copy. There was an open copy that was visible, kind of like an open record in our our modern day uh, account. Anybody could see it. But in case it was ever, there was any accusation that it was tampered with, there remained a sealed copy that could be opened Uh, in a court setting to verify that the original was true. So that's why you had two copies. He did all of this, had it sealed up, then gives it to Baruch, his scribe, in the presence of his cousin and the other witnesses in the transaction. And then he charges Baruch in verse 13, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. There's the explanation. There's the the, the meaning of the object lesson. The people of Judah would know that one day there would be more transactions like this one. Fields will again be bought and sold. It's a beautiful Example, object lesson, seems fairly clear, but we see right away that Jeremiah is still puzzled by the whole thing. And can we blame him? I mean, if we were in that setting, 
You know, it would be like, again, you know, Cat 5's coming, it's coming right at us, and somebody's saying, hey, I have this mobile home out here that I would like to sell you, and it's, it's, it's in great shape, and, and you know, would you, would you buy it? And you're probably thinking at the timing, just it doesn't seem right, because that may be the first thing to go. We see this in verse 16, the Lord expresses, or, or Jeremiah expresses to the Lord, ah, Lord God. It is an expression of... I'm not really sure it's an expression and, and, and we have to read the whole prayer, which I'm not going to read it again, but, but hopefully you caught it as we read through the text this morning. It's this idea that I really don't know what you're doing. It really comes through in the last verse in verse 25, like, Hey, the army's coming, but you told me to buy the land. So that's what I did, but I really don't understand. Ah, sovereign Lord would be another way that this could be translated, that the situation seems impossible. So Okay, Lord, you told me to do it. Now, he has been given the promises through the prophecies, right? He knows informationally what is coming, but his circumstances, what he sees with his eyes, makes the whole thing seem unbelievable. Because again, if he doesn't see with his eyes, if he's, whatever his setting is in the jail, he certainly hears it with his ears that the army is just outside. Think of Abraham. Go into Mount Moriah. Think of Jehoshaphat as that army was coming to invade. Or like Peter, when so many of the disciples left and Jesus turned to the 12 and said, do you guys want to desert too? Peter's response, I know I quote this all the time, but this is near and dear to my heart. Lord, to whom shall we go? Think about that. Like we have no other choice. You know, we have no better. You're, you're, you're the best option we have going. You know, we've kind of given it all up. There's nothing else for us. This is it. Right. So it's this when on one hand, it's this statement of desperation. But on the other hand, you have the words of eternal life, words rooted in hope. And just like Peter's expression, Jeremiah does the same thing. Ah, Lord God. Right. I have questions. I'm not sure why we just did this. This seems really impossible. But then he goes on to pray this incredible prayer of faith saying nothing is too hard for you. He's confessing and professing his faith in what God can and will do even when he struggles to believe it. His prayer recounts the unending love and faithfulness of God even though the sins of fathers uh, have, you know, the, the, the effects of the sins of fathers continue throughout generations. They see this. He praises the God who is great in counsel, mighty indeed, having shown signs and wonders in the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. He recounts the land which has been given to them, which they took possession of, the land flowing with milk and honey, according to the promise, even though the people would not obey. And because of their disobedience, he then provides the explanation for judgment. We've seen this so many times now in the book of Jeremiah, where the judgment is always justified. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is not just for the people of Judah. It's for us to remember as well that, we might not consider it trite that our sins have been forgiven. We need to remember that we too are stained, guilty, uh, before we have been redeemed, right? We, 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 we all have sinned. We have all gone astray. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so he recounts the sins that lead to the judgment. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And behold, and because of the sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans, who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city 
is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Do you see the tension that he's expressing there? You, O Lord, have said, I mean, they're coming. They're, they're right outside, but, but you said buy this land, so I did it. And so Jeremiah then ends his prayer with, you know, rooted in faith, but still with this kind of question hanging out in the air. What an impossible situation it seemed to Jeremiah that the Lord could restore his people. But he trusts him. He confesses with his mouth and professes, I'm trusting you, Lord, even though nothing makes sense. And so to this, the Lord responds in verse 26, and he says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? I mean, he repeats Jeremiah's or echoes Jeremiah's prayer back to him. And he reminds him of what is true, refreshing his prophet with words of comfort in an impossible situation. Nothing is impossible for the Lord God Almighty. But first, the judgment has to come against the city, and it would be burned just as he had prophesied all along. The Babylonian army is going to come in just like the people had burned their offerings, their incense, poured out their offerings on the rooftops to their false gods, so the city would be burned. He joins the northern and the southern kingdoms in the message, saying, For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight. Verse 30, the children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. What is happening in Jerusalem and really in all of Judah uh, is justified. This is not unfair. And it begs the question, why would God ever again show kindness to such a rebellious people? Verse 32, they have continually kindled the anger of the Lord. Not they made me mad once. They have continually kindled the anger of the Lord. Verse 33, they have not listened to or received instruction. Verse 35, they have even sacrificed their children in the fire, which is an abomination. We've talked about this. Moloch, they, they literally had child sacrifices. I mean, you can hear the abhorrence that God has for this act. I, didn't, I couldn't even think of it. He uses human terms to describe something that is beyond his imagination. From a human perspective, there is no justifiable reason for Judah to ever be shown mercy again. The people only deserve wrath. But God, ah, Lord God, O oh sovereign Lord, whose love knows no end, the God of the eternal covenant interjects into what is an impossible situation with his message of loving redemption and restoration. He begins by promising to gather again from all the countries to which I drove them, verse 37, in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation, I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. But not only would he bring them back, he would affirm them in the new covenant. They will be my people. I will be their God once again. And then in verse 39, he promises to give them an undivided heart, the same language of the circumcised heart promised all the way back in Deuteronomy 30. He says, I will do this for them. I will give them a new heart, heart of stone taken out, given a heart of flesh, undivided, united, single-minded, that they might fear me and love me and know me for their own good and the good of their children after them. The new covenant that he will establish will be unbreakable. It will be everlasting. Why? Because as we read in the last chapter, he will forgive 
their sins. He will remember their iniquities no more. And then he adds this to the covenant. I will not turn away from doing good to them. Verse 40. In their hearts, he will place a fear. Not not a scaredy, afraid kind of fear, but a reverence and an awe that leads to obedience that they may not turn from me. And then the crowning verse, or it's the way that it strikes me, verse 41, I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. I don't even know if we can comprehend all that this verse means, that our God would say this of his people. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Stand up and bless the Lord, your God, from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, and with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. The God who says to us, I will do only good to you with all of my heart and with all of my soul. How else can we respond but with praise? Praise and unending praise for what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. The final response that God gives to Jeremiah in the passage is, in essence, remember the field. Remember the field that I instructed you to buy. For just as I have brought out the army of Babylon to destroy the city, so I will restore you as a people to this land and to this very field, this seemingly insignificant field. Think of the majority of Jeremiah's message. It's about judgment. It's about discipline. It's all arrived. It's outside the city walls. But the people now have the same assurance that just as what Jeremiah said and that the judgment was coming, now they can know too that restoration will come. All the good that I promised them, verse 42 says, will come. They will build. They will plant. They will purchase in a land that has been made desolate. What appears to be impossible before their eyes will be made possible because of the God who is faithful. Deeds will be signed again all over the land. Fields are once again bought and sold. I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. The seemingly insignificant field was a reminder to the people. And think of it, they were about to go into exile for 70 years. So they're going to have some time to think about it. And this book that Jeremiah has written, and particularly this book within a book, the book of Consolation, was a reminder that God is going to deliver them. He's going to bring them back. This little plot of land that was given to them as a reminder, as a testimony, as an object lesson is not far from another piece of land, seemingly insignificant. A piece of land where another purchase was made, a greater purchase. 
that would be coming in the future to accomplish all of the promises that were being made in the new covenant. And this purchase was made by God himself, who put on flesh and dwelt among mankind. And on the cross, Jesus laid down his life to pay the price for your sin and for my sin. Because we too, like Judah, have perpetually sinned again and again and again. We have failed to receive God's instruction. We have gone after the other gods in this world, seeking our own righteousness and trying to attempt to justify what we do, looking for security in worldly things, be they investments or political powers or even just our best laid plans. We hide our sins. We think no one notices All of us have gone astray, but God has laid upon our Savior the iniquity of us all, that the wrath of God might be satisfied. We are called to come through faith, to trust in this Lamb who was slain on our behalf to take away our sins. And as we trust in Christ, the spotless Lamb, these promises of the new covenant come to us. They are ours We are made God's people, and he is our God. He removes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. We become trees of righteousness that then bear fruit of righteousness, born out of an ever-growing thankfulness to the one who has saved us. And our God will then bring us safely home, where he will show us only goodness forever and ever, with all his heart, with all his soul delighting over us as his trophies of grace, doing only good to us. What seems like impossible in this life, these things are not impossible with God. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So hear the good promises that await us. These are ours in Christ Jesus. The fruit of the new covenant that our God will do us good forever and ever with all of his heart and with all of his soul. And so when you're in what is seemingly like an impossible situation in this life, when you can't see your way through, when sorrows like sea billows roll, when Satan should buffet and attack, when trials should come, may we know because our God who keeps his covenant, who never changes, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, Because we know who he is and trust in him, we can say with all of our heart and with great assurance, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father, would you do that in our hearts? Cause us to see you as as a God who says, I delight over my people. Or there are days where that just is beyond comprehension. 
We know the ways that we've strayed and sinned. We know the secret things in our hearts. Lord, the fact that you would choose to delight over us out of your love is baffling. Lord, when we think of what we face in this life or even imagine what we might face, would you give us great assurance that the same God who promised, even after the righteous judgment, to deliver the people of Judah did in fact bring them back, did in fact restore and plant them. And yet in that, Lord, we see the far-off hope, this unending good, and we long for that day. Would you help us believe that? that we have a secure future and a hope so that even what we face in this life that seems impossible, though the fig tree doesn't bloom, though there's no food in the fields, though everything looks barren and deserted, much like Jerusalem did after Babylon attacked, that yet again one day we will come to the land and there will be planting and building. We know that is the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, we long for that. After this life, would you give us eyes of faith to see and to hope and assurance that you will carry us through. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.